BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Lisa Pressman, and I am so grateful to have with me Dr. Polly Young Eisendrath, a Jungian psychologist, a professor the founder and director of the Institute for Dialogue Therapy and an author of many books and chapters and papers, as well as the founder of Enlightening Conversations, Buddhism and Psychoanalysis, Meeting in Person. Polly's been a featured speaker at the Aspen Ideas Festival, TEDx, and has a podcast called Enemies from War to Wisdom. Thank you so much for coming. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. Really wonderful. <laughs> I wanted to have a discussion around the premise of the self-esteem trap, raising confident and compassionate kids in an age of self-importance. That's I was kind of at the beginning of a wave of books about parenting that involve the kind of parenting that would be the privileged parents. And by privileged here, people mean uh, middle class mm-hmm. and up upper middle class, that actually lead to bad outcomes. So there's a style of overparenting and also uh, having these amazing expectations for your kids that um, actually leads to problematic outcomes. And now we know and have much more research than when I wrote the book. And so this whole trend in parenting which is connected, again, primarily to privileged children and privileged parenting, has very much sort of reached its, let's say, epitome Mm -hmm. now. And we see in the elite colleges and universities the um, outcome of over-parenting and running interference for your kids. And the outcome is that we've produced generation of overly sensitive uh, young adults who cannot seem to enter adulthood directly and have a lot of anxiety about their own self-esteem and about being separate from their parents. And instead of looking upon themselves as competent adults, they look upon themselves as, you know, perennial children. And they value childhood often more than adulthood. It's like childhood is the best time of life. Um, Madeline Levine is another Mm -hmm. psychologist in this area. And um, when I was was at the Aspen uh, Festival, I was on a panel with her. 
And what she was seeing then, uh, she had written The Price of Privilege and uh, Raise Her Children Well. And she was saying that parents have become the audience for their children. And so they've created an environment in which children don't understand what the advantage is about being an adult Mm. because everything that is amazing and wonderful happens in childhood. So leaving childhood seems almost traumatic Mm. because you're not going to get anything better. When you become an adult, then you have to take care of kids and be their audience and so on. You're no longer the special individuals. When I came into this conversation, I probably had a bit of a lighter touch than what has now occurred because what I was mostly concerned about was um, baby boomer parents who seemed to feel that they were being seen so negatively by their children and yet they had so much responsibility for their young adult children And so there seemed to be kind of a cycle of um, almost like, uh, I don't want to say parent abuse, but kids being abusive towards their parents. And then the parents having to run interference for the kids who had DUIs or were dropping out of school or were, you know, not being able to get a job. And the parent was still having to support this young adult child. And yet that child was so hostile towards the parent. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of this cycle of hostile dependency, mean-spiritedness, and then feelings of failure in the kids themselves. So uh, I started seeing that in the, um, I would say, mid-2000s. And I couldn't quite understand what the roots were. So I decided to write The Self-Esteem Trap And originally, I wanted to write it as a book that was addressing young adults. Hmm. And then when we sold the proposal to Little Brown, uh, they wanted it as a parenting book. So the reason that I didn't want to address the parents is because I felt like addressing parents is kind of a losing game because parents get a narcissistic reward from having these quote unquote amazing kids. And when their kids are young, the kids have to look up to the parents when they're very young. Mm -hmm. So the parents can build a kind of good feeling about themselves based on these little eyes that are looking up at them and oh, how cute everything is and how wonderful the kids are and so on. And, And they can also, the parents, get the feeling that this child is going to show up perfectly in the world and be so much better than I am, so much smarter, so much more beautiful, so much more talented musically or whatever. And that looks like it's going to produce these ends, which it's not going to produce. But by the time you get to the bad outcome, you've got exhausted parents who now are blaming themselves for their and chi- the, for the for child for this outcome. And then the, the parents of the younger kids aren't going to listen to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really found that, that my prediction around that was true. When the book came out, I did a lot of big speaking engagements, including the one in Aspen. And um, 
the audience that I found most difficult to speak to was parents. I could speak to college counseling centers. Absolutely, 100%, they were on it because they were getting, particularly in elite colleges, they were getting a population of students that they'd never seen before, from self-harming to binge drinking to anxiety, depression. There was, among privileged kids, diagnoses that counseling centers weren't prepared to see. Um, So the college counseling centers, great to speak to. Independent high schools, that is private high schools, Uh great to speak to. They were finding the parents were just driving them crazy. And the kids really weren't prepared to be independent. And then the young adults themselves, great to speak to because they were experiencing this tremendous anxiety about themselves and the feeling somehow that they didn't deserve the privileges that they mm-hmm. had had, and they didn't know how to put the pieces together. I have I talk about a case in the book where a young man came to see me and he said, I'm suffering from feelings of superiority. And no one had ever said that to me. And I was like, wow, that's great that you have that insight. And over time, I did actually follow up with the young man because he called me back again and again. Eventually, he became a psychologist, which was interesting. (laughs) But um, the fact is that it was almost impossible to speak to the parents. The parents were so defensive of their position, so offended by the idea that they shouldn't want really special kids or that they shouldn't say that their kids were amazing or, you know, Once I was in an audience, it was actually an audience here in New York uh, at an independent school where I had spoken to the faculty and uh, the counseling people, and then they had the parents come in. And um, somebody said, well, what would be the one thing? Like, you know, I say we need to start a new conversation about what it means to be a parent. And the parents said, what would be the one thing if if you could ask for just one simple thing that parents could do? And it took me a few minutes, and and I said, don't boast about your children. And that was not a popular answer. Did you just say don't boast about your your children? Because I thought, did you say boast or post? Uh, No, well, it could be both. (laughs) But it is Don't boast about your children. Don't boast about your children. Right. Posting about your children makes you feel good, but the other people, they're not interested. It's like boasting about yourself, you know? People aren't interested, even your grandchildren. Uh I mean, I'm in the grandchildren category now, and I'm really hesitant to show the pictures on my phone because I know, number one, people don't really care. Totally. And number two, when other people show me their pictures, I'm like, you know, (laughs) yeah, very cute, very nice. But it's not an interesting conversation, you know? And so, and the other thing is if you stop boasting about your children, you have to think about in this moment, why am I doing this? Mm. What is this getting me to boast about my children? And I believe that built into that boasting is the biggest mistake that we make, which is that we believe our children reflect our parenting. If we believe that our children reflect our parenting, then it is devastating Mm -hmm. if things don't Turn out out. the way you want them to. So how can parents balance? I have so many questions about this. So the first one is, what is the balance between 
supporting your kids, obviously with more space over the years from the beginning, and offering the opportunities that are, quite frankly, a privilege. There are several things that I think are kind of like framing the picture that I'd like to point out, and then I'll try to answer the questions. So first of all, and I think this is maybe the biggest mistake that we make, is that we believe that we own or control our lives. That somehow if we go to a certain school, Mm -hmm. if we take certain kinds of lessons, or we give our children certain opportunities, that there will be certain outcomes. That is a complete mistake. Because life is so complex, the variables, the circumstances, the things that happen are not under our control. And so as soon as you set yourself (laughs) up for thinking that if you send your your child to a certain school Mm -hmm. or if you provide certain kinds of experiences for your child, even things like good food or, you know, that they get a certain amount of sleep or whatever, that you're going to get an outcome that you want, a big mistake. Instead, if you think that living here on earth is very complex and difficult. And perhaps if you prepare yourself and your child for understanding that, first of all, and don't create expectations that go beyond a level, a certain reasonable level of control, Mm -hmm. you might have a happier child because that child won't have the impression that if I go to this X school, that there's then a, you're building I am this going life. to then you know do this incredible career and have these outcomes of my tremendous success and I'm also going to raise wonderful and healthy children and go on in life at the highest level none of that is going to be true and in fact if you look at the reality of who are the people that really succeed in life These days, particularly as we have people coming from other cultures, people coming from circumstances that are not privileged, often the people that are really succeeding are people who had kind of difficult circumstances. I think about that all the time. What, you know, how how are you supposed to curate a perfect childhood and then expect that whenever you think about anybody who's had an interesting life or if you're trying to build the exact outcome that you want, really look at it, the perfect childhood wasn't what built that. That's exactly right. In fact, if you look at right now who is getting into the number of the best graduate programs in sciences or graduate programs, even in humanities, I'm going to say even in the humanities because, you know, it's like (laughs) people are like downgrading the humanities, but the people that are getting in often and then the people that are getting the jobs are often young people that are coming from cultures and societies that are pretty constrained. Anything from China to India to Korea to um, certain aspects of growing up in America, disadvantaged. So you could say, well, they've got what people have come to call grit from Duckworth's work, Mm -hmm. uh, or you could call it resilience, so you could call it protective factors. But they have certain capacities to work with difficulty, constraint, and um, disappointment. That the children who go to the best schools and have the best parenting 
it seems obvious now they can't work with the constraint, the difficulty, the disappointment, Mm -hmm. the failure. And, you know, as Bob Dylan said a long time ago, there's no success like failure and failure is no success at all. And I, I really think what he's saying in that line is very important for parents to embrace. Your kids need to experience failure again and again before they get out of your home because you're, they're more protected at home. And so, you know, if they fail and you actually allow them to fail and then you help them learn from the failure that is more important in childhood than success, 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 because working with failure, and the failures can be failures in friendship, failures in health, right, they failures don't, right. in These academics. Can be it can be any kind of failure. That that working through is more important than sending them to the best schools. But I was called in to consult with a group of parents in a town in northern Vermont. I live in Vermont. And they were calling me in because in their public school, and the public school system in Vermont is the second highest in the whole country, even though we have a very small population, because the state puts a lot of money and resources into public schools. So there's really no reason to send your kid to private school in Vermont. But in this kind of community that I was being called into, there were a lot of privileged people who had moved to Vermont uh, because they liked the environment and they wanted to do the organic this and that and so on. They were in a kind of crisis because the farmer's kids, a lot of those farmer's kids believed in hell. They believed in heaven and hell. And so they were saying, our kids are in school, with this elementary school, mm-hmm. with kids that believe in hell. We would like to create a homeschooling unit so we could pull our kids out. Instead of learning to be in school with Instead of being with in school with kids who believe in hell. What do you think? I said, are you kidding? Are you kidding? Like, this is your minority population. These are the people who are not privileged in your community. If you care about working with people who don't have privilege, here are your kids in school with them. Why not help your kids have a conversation about what hell is? Why not talk with them when they come home and say, Little Joey believes in hell. Okay, so tell me what little Joey believes. Uh And then have a conversation. And then maybe, you know, have that kid come over and have a conversation with that kid. Because here's a learning opportunity to understand somebody who has a really different point of view. And it's happening right here in your backyard. You don't have to send your kid to Honduras, Guatemala, to work (laughs) with some underprivileged population so they can learn how those people live. You have them right here in town, you know. But again, that idea of actually working with a situation that was truly disruptive was like the last thing they were thinking of. It was like they wanted to remove their children from working with a situation that was honestly disruptive in their community in order to protect them from that disruption. And yet those very people, I'm sure, earned their money over the disruptions in Silicon Valley. Uh You know, they love disruption, except when it comes to to their their children. children. So 
Anyway, that was a very big learning experience for me because I was like, huh? Well, really? I think that happens even on a small level when if there's, you know, in a preschool class, if there's a kid who bites or hits. Yeah. Parents are like, let's kick them out of the school or I won't have my kid in that class, for example. Right, right. Or a teacher who doesn't teach in the way that parent thinks, you know, is not good. So there's just a whole bunch built into this, but really recognizing that you don't own your children, you don't control your children, and you don't control your own life. Now, you also are responsible for your children until they're grown up, for your life, from the point of view of your own speech and your actions, and for actually setting up an environment that's reasonable for parenting. So what's the difference between responsibility and control? And this is one of the big things I've worked with parents on forever. When you're responsible, you're actually setting up some intentions about kindness, about compassion, maybe about wisdom. Maybe you want things to turn out in a way that that is also workable for all parties. So you help your children understand the rules of living and you, you help your children also understand how to work with others. Uh, and then you understand that yourself. While you do these things that might be actually um, on the, let's say, side of ethics and morals and kindness and compassion, you don't know that the outcomes are going to be that you're going to be raising a kind and compassionate kid, that you yourself are going to be able to work with a situation in your life so that these circumstances end up being what you want them to be. All of us are influenced by everything in our environment, everything from the people that we're interacting with, our own habits, the moment that we're in in time, what's coming up in the culture at large, and now, of course, social media and all of the things that have to do with social media, all of which are out of our direct control. So even if I behave as a thoughtful kind individual. I work with my own speech so that I speak in that way. I work also with my actions so that I don't actually, at least I don't intend to do, demeaning, dismissive, you know, uh, hostile things to others. I don't know in the long run if that will lead to the outcomes that I'm looking for in life. So that complexity of as the Buddhists say, you know, the causes and conditions mm-hmm. of our lives, those causes and conditions set up circumstances that we do not control. What we do and are responsible for is the attitude and the way that we interact with those causes and conditions. So you can, for example, raise a child in a really good family, send that child to a really good school all the way along, and the child can commit suicide at the age of 25 for circumstances that you're not responsible for. That child has come up with certain ways of seeing herself or himself. And the the rates of childhood suicide, by the way, are increasing both. They're increasing vastly for middle school girls. I just Mm -hmm. heard in in a podcast with Jonathan Haidt talking to Shane Parrish and the Knowledge Project, which is a very good podcast I listen to. The rates of for adolescent girls are going up, and the rates for for males in their twenties hugely going up among privileged kids. Right, and so um, you are not responsible for outcomes 
that have to do with causes and circumstances that you cannot control. So what are you responsible for and how should you guide your children? So as an overview, I would say that there are two really important things that parents should keep their eye on. And the most important is what I call autonomy. Mm -hmm. That is the ability to make decisions about your own life. It's, It's like driving your own car, you know, being the captain of your own ship, um, or simply being able to govern yourself, that is, make decisions that make sense. So over a childhood of development, at the very beginning, the parenting people, mother usually, is making all the decisions for that infant. Over time, while that person is still at home, that parent has to let go, let go, let go, until by the time that child is 18, still not fully formed, but now able to do things legally like drink and drive and vote and so on, that child should have a pretty good sense of governing herself. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that means that along the way, the parents are first letting go of the body of the child, the dressing and the governing of that body, then the the friendships of the child, then the homework of the child, Mm. then the college application of the child, Mm -hmm. so that if you have that letting go of and allowing the child to make mistakes, that child, by the time the child is 18, actually should be able to go away from home, make pretty good decisions, not perfect, but pretty good, about things having to do with personal health, things having to do with planning for the future, that is studying and putting together projects, things having to do with finances and money, and things having to do with friendship and relationships. So that child now has the skills of autonomy and agency in personal life, Mm -hmm. uh, and then can refine those skills between 18 and 25, which is roughly the end of the development of the brain. And so that child by the age of 25 can actually use uh, what Piaget calls formal thought operations. That child can operate on her own thoughts and feelings and say, okay, if I choose this, this is likely to be the outcome. Is that really what I want to do? And what do my feelings right now mean in relation to, uh, you know, my own actions, et cetera, et cetera. So that arc of the development of autonomy should be in the front of your mind as a parent all along. All along, all right? Along. Autonomy, supportive parenting That's from right. Birth. And allowing your child to fail is part of that because mm-hmm. without the failure, they can't govern. So that's why when they go to college and they're away from you, mm-hmm. they're terrified because they don't have the authorities. The authorities are back home. Mm-hmm. They have to call them every day to for find decision out. Making. For the decision-making. Mm-hmm. And so you do not want that. You want decision-making. You want autonomy. You want good citizenship as outcome. So all of that... And then on the other side, there's mm-hmm. the second one, which is relationality. Mm. So there's autonomy and relationality. What is relationality? Relationality is your child's ability to deal with a social environment. And since we are very social, we are you know, like the higher apes, we really need contact with others. That child should be able to deal with everything from praise to difficult criticism and conflict. And the child should not be primarily motivated by praise. 
Thank you. And that is actually one of the biggest problems. I mean, years ago when I was training my dog, so I had a big American <laughs> bulldog, and he was like 135 pounds, which is like usually what my weight is, between about 135, 140. If I was under that dog's weight by like a pound, the dog would take charge. The dog actually could tell when I would, because it would pull on the, uh-huh. the, le- the leash, you know? And so it could tell my weight. I didn't realize this at the time. I didn't know what was going on. And my husband got ill and eventually died from early onset Alzheimer's during the time I had this dog. So there was a point at which my husband moved out of the house to go into care. And the dog was starting to be really hard to deal with. And so I took the dog to training and the dog was, was large by then, was full grown. And the trainer taught me this one thing that I thought was like a secret to parenting. He said, when you put your dog in a down, you know, down, the dog lies down. Do not praise the dog. Don't say good dog. And I said, why? And he said, because when the dog goes into a down, there is a natural reward. The dog is relaxed. The dog will miss that. It won't notice that it's relaxed because it will focus on your praise. Or if you give it a treat, focus on the treat. Mm -hmm. So he said, when your dog is doing something, when you give it an order and there's a natural reward, do not praise it. Mm. And I thought about how many times children are praised for doing things like climbing the stairs. Good job. Instead of just, they get to the top of the stairs. And they feel great oh, about having I'm gotten good. to the top I'm of the stairs. I'm up here. I'm good. Mm-hmm. So instead of our children actually noticing how their actions interact with outcomes that work for them, they are noticing how their actions interact with parental praise right. or parental gratifications, approval, approval sure. treats, rewards, whatever. Mm-hmm. So they miss the connection between their actions and pleasant outcomes for themselves. Is it about competency, understanding that you can develop a sense of competence because you've met that challenge, getting up the flight of stairs or whatever it is, versus because you were trying to please your Somebody else, yeah, them. yeah, so, and even right. yeah, competence or pleasure, even you know, I <laughs> that, mean, that's be, a higher bar. But yeah, you're right. Yeah, I it's just the remind. pleasure of getting to the top of sure. the stairs, or the pleasure of reading the book, or the pleasure of doing your homework, mm-hmm. instead of doing it for somebody else's praise, approval, mm-hmm. a grade, a reward. All of those things interfere with your ability to discriminate the outcome of your own behavior. So you don't know then when you leave home, you don't know when you've read the book for your own pleasure, you don't know Mm -hmm. that you could write the paper and enjoy the actual process of it because all of those things have been interfered with by parental praise, approval, and just general blah, blah, blah. Because common, the, any commentary. The, the commentary is constant with parents. That's amazing. Oh, what a great job. And even with all the instructions around praising the activity rather than the child. It's still, which, it's still out of control. It's still out of control because it's like the dog. Once I started doing that, just down, the dog laid down. I didn't praise the dog. I didn't give the dog a treat. The dog got a lot better. 
at just following the command. My mother told me that she praised me so much that when I got to preschool, and she clapped for everything that I did so that when I got to preschool, every time I did anything, I would turn around to look at the teacher. The for teacher the audience. told my mom for yeah, the audience right. and nobody was clapping. Right. So she got a lesson early in yeah. my childhood because the teacher said, your, your daughter's looking for us to to respond to whatever she does is, you know, what's going on at home. Um, and my mom told me that long ago, but it was, it was so sad uh, because it, then you sit there as a little preschooler and you're already getting into that position of like, Your self-esteem oh, no. is falling because nobody's, nobody's clapping. clapping. And that's, I think, what's happening to the kids when right. they go to college. And again, it's privileged North American kids. Mm-hmm. A lot of people that are coming from Asia, even from Africa, Russia, Ukraine, lots of people that are coming to this country. And I see them because, you know, I teach residents and then I've also done a lot of things with leadership development in a a military, private military university called Norwich University in Vermont. What I see is that kids who've had a rough childhood in which they've navigated a, a structure of discipline and disappointment do better than kids who've been praised a lot in a privileged environment. And they do better not simply because they know how to be disciplined, but because they understand the pleasure of their own competence, if you want to call it that, of their own ability to do things. Mm -hmm. They enjoy those things. They're not doing them for other people. They're doing them because of the pleasure of doing them. So that I think is, again, one of these overarching things. You're looking for autonomy. You're looking for relationality without constant approval and praise. And also, on the relational side, you want your kids to have failures and friendships. You want them to go through the conflicts and difficulties of adolescence with your help without feeling that they're always right, you know, that someone else is wrong to go through the process of working out difficulties and friendships where you also encourage them to be able to see the other person's point of view or difficulties with teachers. Very many times people say, you know, now she's got this teacher who's just so this or that rigid or demanding or whatever. So I say, good, great. Because when your person goes out into the world, your daughter, your son, or your person, uh, that, that, grown-up person is going to be in contact with a lot of really difficult people, you know, because there are a lot of difficult people in the world. There are a lot of people that are deprived in the world. There are a lot of people that are angry. There are a lot of people that are ill. There are people under all sorts of conditions. So learn it in childhood to negotiate it, and you can then negotiate in adulthood. It's such an important thing to remember because people do panic and try to choose who the teacher is going to be like, oh, I got the good one. I didn't, you know, whatever. And it's just understanding that that experience for the child to learn how to engage in different personalities or with different personalities will help them. So parents inevitably want to, you know, delight in their children. They want to be the person who lights up when their child walks into a room. How can they balance letting their child know that their child is special to them versus being special in the universe at large? Well, I think not boasting about your children so much. I think you need to keep those things under consideration in your conscious mind. 
as much as you can. And what I would say about, you know, the delight, if you see your child, and it's pretty easy to see uh, after the child is at least, I don't know, seven or eight, if you see your child looking to you to get feedback on small things, Mm -hmm. then you want to ramp down your delight. What a great and easy thing for people to to understand. If your child, it's like if they're constantly showing you their artwork or if they're swimming in the pool and saying, mom, mom, mom. Yeah, exactly. It's a tip. Yeah. Bring it down a notch. Yeah, exactly. My six-year-old grandson said to me, I, I'm a genius. He, he literally said that when he was. Uh, <laughs> he picked the wrong we grandma. Were, yeah, we, he's got another grandma probably said, great about that. But I said, no, you can't be. And he said, why? And I said, because if you were, you wouldn't say that. <laughs> and, and my daughter was infuriated. He went back and told her, you know, and uh, she was just infuriated. She says, mom, you know, don't cut him down. He's, he's very smart. And I said, you know, I'm sure that he gets lots of praise for that. And one little grandma moment is not going to break him. And actually, I think it's true. You know, I think if you are a genius, you're not actually focusing on thinking you're a genius when you're six. You know, you're actually working on something Mm -hmm. and you're taking it on and it's interesting. (laughs) You're not thinking, I'm a genius. Mm -hmm. And so... (laughs) He and I have had a lot of conversations about various things having to do with being smart. But, you know, the fact is that my children, your children, most of the children around me are really smart. It counts for very little. Lifetime happiness, Mm -hmm. lifetime autonomy, Mm -hmm. lifetime fulfillment. Okay, it's great that you're smart. It's great that you have a good vocabulary or that you know how to use Siri or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is not going to count for a lot in the long run. And if parents can see that, mm-hmm. then they can work with that a little bit, you know, more sort of reasonably. And the overpraise really will count badly against your child. There's another thing that my mom said to me long ago before I had kids. She was a reading specialist. And she said the worst thing that she sees is those kids who were early readers mm-hmm. and everybody gets so excited, not early readers because their parents did teach my right. baby to read or something, but they just happen to be early readers. Right. It has no bearing on the rest of their lives, but for that couple of years, everybody praises them and gets shocked by it and talks about it. And they feel a sense of pride right. because it's just out there. So they're three, four or five years old and no right. one else is reading like they are. But because everybody reads eventually, yes, it it's gone, right? And so they have such their self esteem is plummeting in second right. grade, right? Um, so there are many moments that we can look at in those everyday experiences with our children to just maybe take the temperature of how we're well meaning, of course, trying to build their self esteem and actually undermining it. It's and you know in um, nineteen fourteen, good old Sigmund Freud. <laughs> wrote an essay called On Narcissism. In the beginning of the essay, he talks about the narcissism of parental love. And he says, well, why is it narcissistic? And he says, well, you just have to check on the fact that you want certain outcomes for your kids, but not for any other kids. That is so true. It's like you're just invested in your own kid because you identify with the kid. Mm -hmm. And so parental love is not 
this selfless love. It's just an extension of your narcissistic love. And so when you boast about your kids, you're boasting about yourself. Mm -hmm. When you boast about your grandchildren, you're boasting about yourself. And so that's why it's boring. It's the same way if you're boasting about yourself, it's boring, you know? Right. It's, it's like course. a loop. It's not actually an interesting conversation upside down. Mm-hmm. And it is no favor to know that you are the center of one parent's universe, of a person's universe. Only until you're about maybe two. Right. I mean... Actually, we should say that. Yeah, um, yeah, this, yeah. The early infancy. Life, early life, you need parenting around the clock. Yes. And so that should And enthusiasm start, and, 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 and the involvement. Joy yeah. and involvement, and, absolutely. And then that should drop away starting mm-hmm. at around 18 months to two. That child actually has a world now. And so some of the total focus should be dropping away certainly by the time you get to be three. Life has got a lot of difficulties in it, moment to moment, you know. um, And some of those difficulties feel really, really hard. Uh, If, you know, if you fail at something at school, if a friend kicks you, if you you begin to gossip about about somebody, uh, and girls do this a lot, particularly in middle school, and you find out that the gossip has actually harmed someone, Actually, all of those are tremendous lessons. Mm. And if parents don't try to protect their children, but instead guide their children through the lesson of those things, that is life teaching you about life. It's not something that is a small inoculation. It's actually difficult. The death of a pet, the death of a grandparent, all of those things should be experienced in mm. childhood. And it should; those should be experienced straight out as a part of life. Not like, oh my God, this is terrible. Don't allow your child to see this. Instead, death is part of life. Allow your child to understand that from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And as they go through that understanding and they experience it, it will not be foreign to them. They will not be terrified by it. They will not imagine then that somehow, you know, death shouldn't be a part of life. Mm So all of these things, they're, they're not even just small inoculations. They are part of the nature of being here. And if you actually guide your children through them instead of trying to protect them from them, the children are going to be much happier, much freer. Thank you for listening. And please join me next week for an awesome discussion about raising boys with New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Michael Thompson. And if you like today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review.